Well, today is the last of a six-week crash course in prophecy. We touched on a lot, but nowhere near a quarter of the Bible. I personally believe, and I'm not saying this with any hyperbole, I personally believe today's message is one of the most important I have ever preached. And I would say that for two reasons. One, everything that we'll look at today is the culmination of everything from creation to the cross to the coming of Jesus. Number one, God pulls it all together. You know, people sometimes wonder, how does all this stuff fit together? The second is that it's the parting words of the Bible. And whatever God says in the parting words, you can be sure is incredibly, incredibly important. But it's also glorious. Most of this, not all of this, some of this is not a joyful message. Most of it is. Uh, But the parting words of the Scriptures have both a message of great warning and a message of great, great comfort and beauty. So uh, we'll look at both. I want to read one thing here before we look at two passages uh, that I'll have you turn to. And as a way of reminder, way back when we started this uh, uh, six weeks ago, I'm going to reread what John wrote, the Apostle John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed, or blessed, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Do you believe that? Do, Do you honestly believe that verse? I mean, in the core of your being, do you believe that verse? One, that you're blessed to hear this prophecy. Two, that you're blessed to keep it. And three, that the time is near. I'm going to tell you, we've had a lot of people visit and only come once in this series. I see their faces. I never see them again. A lot of people don't want this, don't want to hear this, don't want to receive this, and do not want to act like it's going to happen. Now, the the bottom line is all these things will take place. The best thing is to come slide up really close to Jesus because it will all take place. And you'll get to see the glory of it today as well. Now, turn with me two places. We're going to go Genesis for one passage and Revelation for the other. Go back all the way to the beginning to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Genesis 49. And uh, when I start reading Revelation, you can go ahead and queue up the placeholder slide for the sound booth. Uh, But Genesis 49, starting with verse 8. Now, Jacob is about to die. He's leaning on his staff. And he begins to give a blessing to each one of his sons. He has a blessing for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Genesis 49, starting with verse 8. Judah, you are he who your brothers shall, future tense, praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, think Satan. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Think the whole world. Especially, the, it's this, that's specifically the people of God. That's the children of Israel and all those that are saints. Judah is a lion's whelp. A young, full-strength lion. 
from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? You can actually capitalize H-I-M if you want in your Bible there. It's a prophecy. The scepter, which is for kings, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh, means peace, comes. And to him shall be the obedience, not disobedience of the nations, the obedience of the people. Fast forward, go to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, starting with verse 6. Did that, did that sink in in Genesis there? Who Jacob is really speaking about? He's speaking about the Lion of the tribe of Judah. John repeats this imagery of Jesus as the Lion because he says it when he goes up and he realizes that Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah when he ascends up into heaven earlier in Revelation. Now, Revelation 19, starting with verse 6, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude at the sound of many waters and at the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns, for let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and him who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in linen, white linen, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, that he himself shall rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come up, gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth beast is the Antichrist, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the swords which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, all the birds with filled with flesh. Think of hand around the neck of his enemies. Go back to Genesis 49. Keep going in chapter 20. 
Verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut it up, and set a seal on him that the thousand years, until the thousand years were finished. But after those things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they, sat on, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not received the, uh, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, nor received his mark on their foreheads and on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Behold, uh, blessed and holy is he who has part of the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years had been expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up to the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil, being deceived, uh, who had deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose faith the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades, or hell, were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone was not found written in the book of life, they were cast into the lake of fire. 21, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last place came and said to me and talked to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? John absorbed all that. We just read that in a matter of minutes. Imagine writing what he's seen 
Let's pray again. Father, we ask that your Spirit would speak to your people. If anyone here is not your people, that today would be the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I didn't want to go to any slides until you heard it directly from the voice of God. Eyewitness account, Jesus' revelation, giving to John exactly what he wants you and me to know. Would you agree that God wants you to know everything I just read? We know this because he wrote it to us. Let's take a look at some things this morning, see if we can kind of learn together what the Lord is doing in this final exhortation, these final words of truth in all the scriptures. I didn't end it. There was was actually a few more. You know, we could have kept reading. There's still another chapter and a half when you get to the very, very end. We know that the final reminder from Jesus in the 20th and 21st verse is, surely I'm coming quickly. That's why he wants us to know these things. But let's take a look uh, at our timeline as we've been doing each week. You understand if you're visiting with us or you haven't been here for all six weeks or you didn't come last week, what we've covered, we started off from the cross, the age of the church, also considered the age of grace. Now, don't be confused. There actually is grace in the tribulation or people couldn't be saved. Uh, There's grace there. There's going to be grace in the millennium reign of Christ as well, but the age of grace or the church age is what we cover from the cross all the way to the rapture of the church. Then we covered the seven-year tribulation, knowing that uh, the tribulation is divided into two halves, three and a half years, three and a half years, 1,260 days, 1,260 days. And then you have uh, the second half is even more violent and even more of the wrath of God poured out than even the first half. Uh, But then you have what we just read about, and that's the return of Christ and then the entering of this thousand-year reign, and then then you have the final judgment, and then you have all eternity, which everyone will spend somewhere, either in heaven or in the lake of fire. There's not a third option. Purgatory is fiction. There is no such place. There's one or the other. So that's what we've covered. So let's take a look at this in order. So we understand how this progression takes place. The first, we want to look at Christ and the church in the book of Revelation. Now, one thing, I'm taking a baby step backwards. If you notice, I started reading in chapter 19 where the church is being gathered together for the actual marriage ceremony of the bride married to the groom being Christ, the bridegroom. Now, something else that probably takes place as best, I I think you can, if you study the scriptures, I I certainly believe it takes place prior and others. Let's take a look first at one of the things that uh, in the 19th chapter, when you see in uh, in verse uh, verse 8, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Uh, In the previous chapter uh, verse, it says that she's made herself ready. What I believe, and I know many others that have studied the Scriptures, and I have some verses to go along with that, is prior to the marriage itself, the judgment seat of Christ takes place. If you are born again and you're alive right now, you'll 
stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. It's the judgment you want to stand before because the second one you don't. That's the, the great white throne judgment. If you're here today, you do not want to see the great white throne judgment. But you do want to see the judgment seat of Christ. You're really going to want to see the judgment seat of Christ if you're a faithful saint. Because it's going to be not all fun and games, not all big smiles for all believers that stand before the judgment seat. Many are going to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. Do you know that? How many believe that? There's going to be, you will not give an account for sin, but you will find out, all of us will find out, some of what we did was total wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, we thought we were doing something great for God, but God says, yeah, but you, all the time you're doing that, you still had unforgiveness against this brother. And because of that, you got no credit. It went up in flames. Yes, you did a great job sharing your faith that day, but you also were really prideful. So there's going to be things that, that see, we want, to do, we want to live our life in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Paul said he was going to be able to cast crowns before the Lord. By the way, this is where when we were talking about giving to the Lord, this is where we know that the natural response of the believer is to give because the first thing you're going to do, if you actually are given anything, you're going to give it straight back. That's why any believer that's not a giver in heart, uh, it's unlikely they're going to receive much reward from the Lord because it's the natural response of the giver to give back. And Lord, Lord changes us. And you know, you don't, you're not that way the day you get saved. It's a, it's a sanctification process. It takes place as you grow in Christ, right? But you should be more of a loving person today than you were five years ago. You should be more, able, more easily able to forgive anyone truly today than you could 10 weeks ago, 10 years ago. We should be growing in our walk with the Lord. You should be more in love with the Word today than you are. You should be more desiring to share the faith. So Jesus is going to judge the works of His church. And just like He does in the first three chapters, He's going to come and inspect all the fruit in our lives. We're going to give an account for it. But again, you won't be judged for sin, but you will give an account for what did you do with all that I gave you? Remember the parable of the talents? You know, you've got, uh, what did you do with those talents? Did you multiply them? I know some people think it's not a big deal. They're like, you know, hey, as long as I get to heaven, I don't really care. You'll care. How many believe you're going to care even if you didn't think you cared now? Can you imagine, st- how many of you have ever been embarrassed and ashamed in front of your boss? Something you said you would get done and you didn't do it. Can you imagine standing before Jesus? Something you said you were going, like, I'm going to follow you my whole life. Yeah. There'll be, there'll be a little bit of shame involved. I don't want to be ashamed, right? Paul wrote to Timothy, a worker that needeth not to be ashamed. It's going to be some. It's good to know these things because God wants to stir you up to remember you're going to have to give an account. If you, in, in high school or college or whatever, you, you were going to have to give an account of the work you did on that term paper. You had to do your best. You had to work hard at it, but there's going to be that. The bride is going to be cleaned and cleansed. Let's look at the next thing, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Or the marriage of the Lamb, sorry. 
the marriage of the Lamb. Then we have that what takes place is uh, Jesus actually brings the church together. Uh, once, once he's had the judgment seat and everyone has received their rewards, of course they want to give their rewards right back to the Lord, then he gathers the church together and there's actually, we don't get any description of it, but there truly is some type of marriage ceremony. Some of these details, the scriptures don't tell us, we won't know until we're there. When we're there, we'll see them for ourselves, and the bride is readied. And then an interesting thing, instead of the bride and the groom headed out to, I guess, a reception, they go on a war party. Isn't that odd? But to go back to Genesis, it said that he was going to put his hand on the neck of his enemies. And those people, guess what the Antichrist and the false prophet had been doing to his bride? <laughs> guess what Jesus does when he, defend, when he rises up to defend his bride? Look out. Because he will tear them to pieces. They had been slaughtering his church, all the way back to Abel. Remember he told the Pharisees, you are guilty of the blood of the prophets all the way back to Abel. And he's like, before this marriage, I've got some unfinished business. Nobody touches my bride and gets away with it and ravishes her and beheads her and slaughters her and tortures her. There's some unfinished business before this marriage is eternal bliss. Although the marriage already is bliss for those that are with the Lord. But he has unfinished business, and he brings his bride behind him. Comes together. We just read about that. Uh, coming together. They followed Christ on white horses. Did you know there's a white horse reserved for you if you're saved? Isn't that cool? And it flies. It's not a unicorn. But it flies. And it flies at the command of the Lord. Pretty amazing, isn't it? White horses. Millions of them. We're not talking about a thousand. We're talking millions of white horses. Imagine the pen in heaven holding them. Let's take a look at what happens as Christ ascends. This is a little bit of a step back to last week, but ever so brief. I just Because it all... To help understand the progression, you really want to see what's taking place in heaven as Christ ascends. Um, the battle of Armageddon is gathered. And this battle line, that's that red line, 200 miles in length. That's how the armies are spread over that 200 miles and all the way probably near the coast over to the Jordan River, packed with millions from around the world that God himself, although he uses uh, Satan to do it, draws the armies of the world there, and they are going to take Jerusalem, in their minds, they're going to take Jerusalem once and for all. Bad idea, but that, was their, that will be their idea. We will take Jerusalem, we will take the holy city, we will kill every single descendant of Abraham. That's their, that's their intention. It's the final holocaust in their minds, that's what they want to do. 
Bad idea because the bridegroom is coming, right? He knows that, he knows that it's imminent what they, what, it, what they have in their minds. Read uh, Psalm chapter 2, for example. Why do, the, why do the nations plot a vain thing, right? Why do the nations rage? But he will laugh at them in their derision, right? So he's going to come down. Uh, the Bible, so, he tells us in Matthew 24, he flashes as east is to the west, he flashes out, right out of heaven. I just kind of portray it as flashing from the eastern sky. Remember, the temple always faces east. It faces the rising of the sun. Jesus comes flashing from the east to west with his saints, millions of saints behind him on horses. Jude talks about it. Of course, John talks about it. He's descending to heaven, uh, descending down from heaven. The armies are gathered northeast, south, and west. He descends, and he doesn't... I used to, when I first started prophecy, I used to think that what took place is Jesus descended, and it was all over. It is and it isn't. It's actually an extended period of time. We don't really even know how long it is. We know that according to Daniel, and I'll show you this on the next slide, there's a gap of, four, there's a gap of 75 days from the end of the second 1260 days. A 75-day gap. Now, this is not unusual for the Lord. You know that when he rose from the dead, there was a gap of time from the time he rose and ascended. Remember, there was a gap till the Holy Spirit came of 50 days of Pentecost, right? So this is not unusual. That's actually quite normal for God to have an event, but then have a little gap period. And he always does something else in that, some of which we can understand, some of which we don't understand. Nevertheless, what I believe, after studying this, uh, a lot. I believe what it appears to be because he, end up, he ends up coming up out of this area, which is modern-day Jordan. We'll talk about that in just a second. Jesus appears to come straight down the battle line, and little by little, in other words, allowing each and every army to get a really good look at the one they want to have their hands on as he one by one, army after army. It's not that he comes down, and you, you might have heard that he comes down and he drops down to the Mount of Olives and it splits. No, he gets to the Mount of Olives, but he does not come and he does not just come down out of the sky and then settle down on the Mount of Olives. He comes, the armies are following with him, and he moves, as it were, down the battle line. Gone, gone. Gone. At the same time, the final plague is, is raining down hail the size of men on these armies. If it's ice, it gives you an idea how, if it would melt on the brutal, hot Palestinian sky, how you could actually have rivers of blood that go up to the horse's bridle because the ice melting with the blood would be just a torrent river flowing. And it would flow the same way as the Jordan River does north-south. And it gets thicker and bigger as he mows down his enemies coming down the battle line. Let's take a look at what takes place here. Next slide. Our first one, the king of kings. He destroys the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're all gathered together there. Again, moving north, coming, flying in from, 
coming out of heaven east to west, coming down north to south. And he takes care of the false prophet. After he destroys all the armies of the world, let's look at the second thing. After he destroys all the armies of the world, he takes the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they are cast alive into hell. They're the first two individuals of any type of demons, of people. They are the first two to be in the lake of fire. Hell is the retaining area where everyone that dies right now is in hell. I believe, I believe the scriptures, we could, go, we could do a whole study, of, maybe, one, maybe in 2013 we can do a study on hell, but I believe that hell is in the center of the earth. I, I, I think it's very clearly taught in scripture. Um, by the way, we can drill for oil and we, we only get like, uh, I, sh- I think I showed my daughters, if this is the globe, uh, my fingernail is about how far we've drilled down. Right? We only get to the tiny crust. The center of the earth is, is room enough for every person that's ever lived and far more. And so I believe that that's where everyone... Remember, hell is going to be cast into the lake of fire. It's going to be pulled out and thrown in like the co- bad core of an apple, tossed right into the lake of fire. But the Antichrist and the false prophet, they go there first. They're the first two to enter. They're cast alive into the lake of fire right after Jesus defeats all the armies of the world. And then the third item here. Remember I said that Jesus is moving down the battle line. But he goes somewhere else before he sets everything else up in Jerusalem. And he heads to Basra. Petra's in Basra. I mean, Petra and Basra are both part of ancient Edom. Right? So Edom was founded by Esau. Remember him? Esau, Jacob's brother. Strangely enough, although we see some similarities to this in the Old Testament, Esau in some ways kind of helps Jacob in the end here uh, because Edom, which is uh, the nation that uh, Esau, uh, Edom is founded by uh, Edom, founded by Esau. Get those two mixed up. And then you have Basra and Petra are both two places in Edom. But the remnant of Israel, those that, um, those that have uh, escaped from the Antichrist, according to Jesus, remember he says in the 24th chapter, when you see the abomination of desolation set up, flee to the mountains in the wilderness, right? They're told to run. Now, they're even told where to run. The scriptures tell us that they're supposed to run to the valley of Azal, A-Z-L. I, don't have, I even have slides for that, but I don't have time to show you today where they went. They would go south, and they would go out of the south. They would head south out of the city. Let's take a look at the next slide. It shows this a little bit better. They were, they were to come out of Jerusalem, flee to the mountains, but they were even told, according to the scripture, which way to go. Three, flee through the valley of Azal. They would come down. And they would end up, God had a special place to refresh them there in Basra that they would be taken care of. Uh, there's, there's plenty of scripture relates to this. You can see um, Isaiah 63, verses 1 and 3. Malachi, uh, sorry, Micah, uh, Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. But when they're in Basra, we don't know exactly... Does Jesus come and get them before he casts the false prophet 
and the Antichrist in the lake of fire, or does he come and grab them and bring them to Jerusalem after he's cast the fall? We don't know. If anyone tells you they know that definitively, they don't. We don't know which happens first. But we know that both are possible scenarios. Either God has already cast out all the wicked and then peacefully brings up those that he has sheltered under his wings, or he brings them up and they're part of the judgment of the false prophet and the Antichrist, and they actually stand with the Lord when he casts them into the lake of fire. Nevertheless, Jesus will come up, and have you ever read that in Isaiah 63? Who is this one that comes up? Bloodstained out of Basra? He's bloodstained because he has just finished defeating all the armies of the world, but then he brings up, out of Basra, he brings up those that are his children, those that he has, uh, those that he has sheltered and protected from the descendants of Abraham, and this would be the faithful remnant of Israel. You know, Paul talks about in Romans they are not all Israel who are Israel, but he talks about the uh, the faithful remnant. This is the faithful remnant that God ends up shielding. Now, it's not the only faithful remnant on the earth; it's the faithful Jewish remnant. There will be Gentile remnant also spread all over the earth. The angels will go from the four corners of the earth, and anyone that somehow survived will be brought to Jerusalem to worship the king. All those that are unsaved will immediately be sent to hell until the second death, uh, the great white throne, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. But then what takes place? What happens next? Well, let's take a look at the next. Take a look at bullet number one here. The land is cleansed. You saw on the one slide, and I don't profess to know exactly, no one can say that they know what takes place in that 75 days. Uh, It's pretty clear from Daniel, though, uh, Daniel chapter 12. um, Let me read it to you so you know what I'm talking about. Daniel chapter 12. You may have read this before and may have just kind of passed over it. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11 and 12, it said, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Well, that's 30 more days than the three and a half years. So it appears that the return of Christ is not exactly when the tribulation ends at day 1260. It's somewhere in that 30-day period. Because the abomination of desolation stays in the temple for 30 additional days. So does Jesus come at the end of those 30 days and destroy the armies? We don't know. It doesn't tell us exactly when he comes. But you still have an additional 45 days. And in that 45 days, this is where Jesus is going to do some of his handiwork on the earth. He doesn't need any time. Did he need seven days to create the world? No. No. I don't know why God does a lot of the things that he does. He has a master plan that I won't fully understand until after we get to heaven. He'll reveal, oh, now I know why you did 30 plus 45. But nevertheless, he comes more than likely at the latter end of the 30 days. The tribulations come to the end of the 60. The Antichrist thinks he's won. Right? That's, that's the point. The Antichrist thinks he's won. Oh, seven years is up. We're still alive. Begins to pronounce the world. 
I told you I'm the real Christ. And he starts to believe it. Probably for day after day after day, 20 days, Jesus still hasn't returned. Armies are all gathered together. They want to kill somebody if they have to kill themselves, each other, which eventually they will turn on each other, <laughs> right? So all these things will take place. But all that is, once that's done, once he's defeated the armies of the world, you've got a lot of blood on the land. There's been a lot of sin and carnage all over the world, and there's a 45-day period. You know as well as I do when you study the Old Testament, there's a lot of cleansing, isn't there, in the Old Testament. Land has to be cleansed. It has to be fully purified before there can be. You can't have a marriage supper with all this blood and death, can you? Right? Women had to be past their impurity. All these things had to be, everything has to be set a certain way before Jesus will do what he says is next on the calendar. So then the Lord and his saints, Jesus does end up standing on the Mount of Olives. When he does stand on the Mount of Olives, then it splits into east to west. Now, if you know Israel, which you've just seen a couple of maps, you've got the Mediterranean Sea over here, and you've got the Dead Sea over here. It'll split from east to west. A huge valley will erupt, and you will actually have in between, all the way over to the Jordan River, all the way over to the Red Sea, this big valley. And out of that will also be a river will flow from underneath the temple. Now, the temple is not on, um, I'm sorry, the temple's not on um, the same mount, but uh, it's not on the Mount of Olives, but the temple will have a river that will come up out of the temple, and it will flow east, although it may also run into a river that the valley has created that runs, because there's also, Ezekiel tells us, there's a river that runs east and west. So two river, there's one river that runs all the way into the Dead Sea, the other direction, it flows. You ever seen a river that flows in two directions? This is a pretty cool river. It flows in two directions because the water comes out of Jerusalem and it flows in both directions. But there's also the healing waters that flow up from underneath the temple and they actually flow only east and they heal the Dead Sea perpetually. The Dead Sea, nothing lives in the Dead Sea now. So that's pretty amazing in itself. But we don't know if that's two rivers or the same river. Uh, you have to take what the different passages tell us and put them together. So then you have what takes place last is this time of great worship. Revelation chapter 14 tells us about this. There's this massive worship service, and the 144,000 sing a song that only they know. You and I won't know the words of it either. You will find when you study the Scripture, especially about heaven, that God does a lot of things that are special for one person. I'll give you a stone which no one knows but yourself. He'll have these personal, intimate relationships, sometimes with 12, sometimes with 144,000, and also one to one to one to one. But we'll all be part of this worship service, those who have returned with Christ this incredible scene of this massive worship service. Can you imagine a, you know, a, a sea of millions of saints worshiping the exalted Jesus in Jerusalem? And then lastly, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I don't know if the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place at 2, 3, or 4. You could interchange 2, 3, and 4, and I 
would tell you, that's fine. No one really knows which one comes first. Is the marriage supper before he splits the Mount of Olives? Is it after he splits the Mount of Olives? I can tell you this, it won't be until the land is cleansed. The land must be cleansed, all sin, all wickedness removed. Now, new people will start to be born that are sinners, but it will take place with all the saints gathered, and then the worship service may be part of it. It might be all part of the same gigantic, unbelievable marriage supper of the Lamb taking place. Now, we know that this takes place here on the earth because Jesus, we're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a bit. Jesus said he would not drink the vine until the Father's kingdom had come. Come. Not that we would go there until the kingdom come. This is why he prayed, thy kingdom come. Let's take a look at the millennium reign. A couple of things here. This Christmas season, you probably know this verse really well, Isaiah 9, 6. Its full revelation is revealed in the future. For unto us, a child is born, a son is given, right? The government will be on his shoulders. Praise the Lord for that, right? There's not a good government on planet Earth. None. They're all corrupt. Some are more corrupt than others. We have one of the better ones, thankfully, but the government will be on his shoulder. Prince of peace. There's no peace on the earth. It's the time of year we, we sing, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The angels were singing that because they knew it would come, but only, they knew it wouldn't come when Jesus was a baby. They were saying, those of you that receive him now will someday see peace on earth. You will not see it in the time of Herod or Pilate or Nero or Adolf Hitler or anybody else, you would only see it, but the angels cried out, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, because the Prince of Peace is born among you, receive him, follow him, and someday you'll stand with him. This is why Job said, for I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him on that day, right? Job knew who he was speaking of now that Jesus will be absolute authority. The duration, a thousand years. Did you know that if you ever hear people tell you, you know there's Christians that don't believe in the millennium? I, I don't know what Bible they read. I have no idea where they get this. I actually do. I've actually heard their arguments. Um, it not only says that there'll be a thousand year reign, but it says it six times. Six times. That's not allegory. Not only that, did you know that even before the New Testament was written, that the Talmud, which are the ancient Jewish writings, these are the, these are the writings that the rabbis wrote. They wrote their own commentaries on the Old Testament. Do you know that the Talmud collectively had so much evidence, they all believed in a future reign of peace that the Messiah would bring that would last a long time? Well before the New Testament, even before that Jesus has touched the earth as a baby in Bethlehem, they knew that there was this future time coming. So if you ever hear people tell you there's not a millennium reign of Christ, well, we'll look in just a few minutes at a few other things that have never taken place. By the way, a good one to think, and think about, have you ever seen in Jerusalem a valley that runs through the Mount of Olives that runs east to west? No. Have you ever seen a river that flows from the temple? No. 
We could stop there because those two things have never taken place, have they? But these things will all take place. Uh, A few other things, and you can see them yourself. Evil will be uh, restrained. Satan, of course, uh, will be in the bottomless pit. Uh, It's likely that his demonic forces are removed at the same time, and there's no demonic presence on the planet. The only thing to trip people up is their own heart, which Scripture says is deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? No one will be able to say, the devil made me do it. No one will be able to say, I wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for that spirit of Antichrist running around, perpetrated by demonic forces. Each person will have only themselves to blame. Now, reigning with Christ, the saints will reign. You and I will reign in some capacity. Remember the Bema seat? Your responsibility will depend upon the rewards you receive at the Bema seat. If you are a really faithful, well-done, faithful, good, and servant, uh, you know what I mean, Um, there will be varying levels of responsibility. Now, some people will say, I just want a shack. I don't care if I'm the janitor, blah, blah, blah. You know, you'll care when you stand before the Lord. Right? But there'll be varying responsibilities. One of the things I think is fascinating, how many of you have ever seen the Scriptures that David might serve as vice regent to Jesus in the millennium reign of Christ? Pretty cool. A lot of Scriptures that that back this up. You can read them for yourself. You want to jot them down. Uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 9, Ezekiel 34, verse 23, Hosea 3, 5. It indicates that, that Christ will reign, and David, it even says, and David, his king. Um, as you know, David didn't get a chance to build the temple, did he? He was a man of blood, and he had also failed miserably with the whole Bathsheba Uriah thing, right? But an amazing show of God's grace. David was always called a man after God's own heart. And it really appears, I believe, and I could be wrong on this, but I'm I'm not alone. There's many that uh, have studied these scriptures. I really believe David will serve as a vice regent. Jesus is the king of kings in here, but he, he will, and there's a picture of this already in the Bible. Remember Joseph? Joseph served as vice regent for Pharaoh, didn't he? He wore the same signet ring, whatever Pharaoh said was going to go, but he allowed Joseph to kind of administer right? And I don't know about you, but Jesus is going to do a lot. Jesus is not going to do any bookkeeping. He's going to administer everything to his saints. And David, you rule on the throne. I'll take care of anything that you can't take care of. Bring it to me. Kind of like uh, Moses was told with the judges. So uh, again, it's one of those things that the scriptures uh, are not 100% clear, but it seems very, very, uh, very, very uh, likely if you study it. A similar thing is, uh, remember in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus told the disciples, who would later be apostles, he told the disciples that they would rule on 12 thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel. They have a special role. Now, if Jesus said it, it's as good as done. And he already said it, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, that they would rule the 12 tribes of Israel on 12 thrones. So you can actually see. Now, Jesus is this, he's a throne high above all thrones. And he's got a vice regent throne for David. He's got 12 thrones 
for the 12 apostles, but we already know he has 24 elders as well. You start to add these up, and there might be 70 here somewhere, right? Remember all the way back to the Old Testament? Again, I'm not telling you exactly. I don't know exactly what takes place. These are the things that we know are factual. So we know that there's the 12 thrones, and so they appear to have a special role. 144,000, they sing a song that only they know. They have a special role. It probably, there's others. Again, the 24 elders are mentioned earlier in the book of Revelation. They probably have a special role. The two witnesses, probably Moses and Elijah, but I'm not telling you that they are Moses and Elijah. We don't know. It could be Enoch. You know, we don't know. But the two witnesses will likely also have a special role. And again, all these roles, God will weave them together and how they would minister the affairs of the world, which the world will be, let's take a look, a place of justice, finally. Go back one more uh, real quick. Time of justice, peace, health. We won't need rust anymore for foot surgeries and stuff like that, you know? Those of us who are saved, we won't anyway because we're coming back in glorified bodies. But the people on earth will experience health like the world has never seen before. People will live long lives. Let's take a look at the uh, moving on here. Speaking of long lives, much longer lifespans. According to Isaiah 65, 20, people will live for 100 years. A child dying at 100 will be considered, well, if you die at 100, you're considered a child. Probably not, and just like in the, uh, in the uh, time before the flood, you won't look like a child. You'll be full adult. But it would be like you died, you know, like right now, if we thought of a 10-year-old dying and kind of compare that to a 100-year lifespan, it's similar to a 100-year-old dying, compare that to a 1,000-year lifespan. It's very, it's almost, it's a, 10, it's a factor of 10x is, is about what we're looking at. Um, animals are peaceful. Even pit bulls will be nice, you know, it's a, all the dogs will be good. You won't have to worry about... Uh, any, any animal you could run through the forest, you know, if you're mountain biking in California, you don't have to worry about a mountain lion hopping on you accidentally. I mean, there's a city in India, GFA just sent us, where 50 men a year die of tiger kills. 50 men in one village. 50 men a year. They won't have to worry about that at that time. All those things will be... One thing that's interesting, too, um, uh, you know that... In the book of Revelation, it tells us that every single creature in the sea dies. Everything. But Ezekiel tells us that the river that flows in both directions will actually make the Dead Sea come to life, and the same sea creatures in the Dead Sea will be all over the world in all the seas. Remember the 45-day period? Somewhere, Jesus, this is just my thought, I have no idea how he does it, but somewhere all the animals reappear whether he speaks them back, whether he touches the waters with his finger, whether he walks on the water, I don't know what it is, whether he tells Moses, put your staff on the water. We have no idea how it happens, but the creatures return because every sea creature was dead, but in the, in the, in the millennium, they're back. The other cool thing is Romans tells us that all of creation groans, all of it. And when I say all of it, it means those things that have already become extinct. I believe every animal... My own person, every animal that's ever become extinct will come back. And if you finally wanted to see T-Rex walk, and you're tired of only seeing a standstill one at the Answers in Genesis Museum, you will get a chance to see it. And you won't have to worry about it being like Jurassic Park eating you because it eats straw. 
and fruit and vegetables. You don't have to worry about that. Of course, if you're, again, if you're glorified body, you totally wouldn't have to worry about it. But the people on earth, uh, those that have come into the uh, millennium reign of Christ, they too will not have to worry about those kind of things. Uh, there'll be more light. But interesting, more solar and lunar light. You would think that more solar and lunar light... Yeah, today, when you get too much sun, you get skin cancer. Then you get longer life. It's a complete opposite. More moon, more light from the moon, more sun. Those of you that think sleeping is a waste of time, the days will probably be a lot shorter. The nighttime will be brief, right? Shorter time uh, asleep, more time awake. So the days will be longer. The sun will shine brighter. Uh, all that takes place as well. You have a unified language. I believe it'll be Hebrew. What do you think? You think it's going to be English? No, it's not. I don't think it's going to be English. Oh, I thought, I thought everything in heaven was American. No. <laughs> probably not anything. The stars and stripes are probably not flying, you know. <laughs> so, actually, the country may survive because it talks about the nations of the world. Um, it talks about the nations of the world will be there, but... Uh, I don't believe um, that uh, the language will be uh, anything but Hebrew. Uh, it could be something else. I'm not telling you definitively that it's Hebrew. God could, God could have a whole brand new language. But I think it's interesting that we don't know if Hebrew existed until Abraham. God called him specifically out. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. We believe that the Ten Commandments was likely written in Hebrew because the Israelites could read it. And the world will be under the law again, which is interesting. Because that would make sense. That the Ten Commandments, everything will come back. The temple will come back. Unified worship in the temple and priestly. The temple is rebuilt. It faces east like it always is supposed to. There's a gate that only Jesus can enter, by the way. Uh, the temple faces uh, east. The temple priesthood is brought back. But not all Levites. Now, the Levites, again, get to administer the temple. But the priestly duties is only reserved for the Levite sons of Zadok. Right? He was back in the Old Testament time of David. He was a faithful priest. And so his sons, I don't know how, but God knows the lineage of the sons of Zadok now. Someone on earth is the sons of Zadok and does not know it. But they'll know it then. They will be the faithful priesthood. They'll actually do the animal sacrifice. Can you believe there's animal sacrifice comes back in the millennium reign of Christ? I don't have time to go through all these paths. I have to skip volumes of scripture, but animal sacrifice comes back. The Passover comes back. All the feasts come back. And not only that, listen to this. If you decide you don't want to participate in the feast, bad decision. You decide, hey, I like living to a thousand, but I'm not really into going up to Jerusalem for this whole feast thing. And, oh, I know, we've got to go do a sacrifice and all that stuff. I'm not into that. This is what the Lord says in uh, Zechariah chapter 14. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem from year to year uh, shall come up to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And the family of Egypt, if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. And they shall receive the plague which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacle. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not come up 
to keep the feast of the tabernacle. And that day, holiness of the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots of the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. So, the world is beautiful, it's lush. The nations, nothing will preclude you from, from unbridled, unmitigated growth, prosperity, and beauty unless you say, we're not doing the feast. We're not going to Jerusalem. And I don't believe that the Scriptures indicates that every single person, this is always the case. Remember, um, when you had to go to Jerusalem to keep the feast, you could send the representative to keep the feast on behalf of the families. The father and, you know, could go up and make the sacrifice. Remember Job? He would, uh, he, would, he would pray for the sins of his family. So I believe that, but if you have a national leader or family leaders, if the dads of the homes or the, or the leaders of nations say, um, we're going to take a rain check on the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles or whatever, the Lord will say, I'm going to take a rain check on rain for your country. And that will get everyone's attention. It won't last long. People will, it's not going to be a time, I, I was telling my wife, I think it's funny, I was saying, you know, this is going to be a time where, you know, you've got people, some of the greatest men that have ever walked, like people like Moses and the 24 elders and the apostles, yeah, they're going to see like a kid band start and they're doing some worldly Christian music and one of them's going to look at them and go, mm-mm, we don't do that here. You know, something like that. You know, it's like, oh, we thought we were going to do, you know, no, uh-uh. You want rain? You know, that's, it will be a time where the Lord will, he won't stop people from having some of the issues of their heart. It's just like the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, remember the Ten Commandments, the first commandments were, were your love for the Lord. Whatever your relationship you had with the Lord just because you kept the feast didn't prove you loved the Lord. But if you didn't keep the feast, it absolutely proved you didn't love the Lord. Make sense? If you come to church, that doesn't prove you love God. If you won't come to church, we know you don't love God. Make sense? Oh, did you just say that? Yeah. Because the Scripture says, Forsake not the assembly of yourselves together, which is the manner of some. Now, the, those that love God don't forsake His assembling. They don't, they don't forsake gathering. They, they run to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. But those that, are, that, that go, that doesn't mean that they have a great walk with God. But if they won't go, just like we see in the millennium, it's proof that they don't. So the Lord says, if you're not going to come, it's obvious you don't love me, no rain. If you come... That doesn't mean that you love me. That'll be revealed at the end of the thousand years. The rest of the commandments will be kept the same way. Only what's visible will be enforced. In other words, if you raise your hand to kill someone, you'll be put to death. You won't have to worry about a bad jury or a stacked jury or the glove didn't fit or this, that, and the other. I mean, all, what, whatever you do, that will be known because God won't need anyone witnesses, any witnesses. He already knows it. He'll be able to come to Jerusalem and say, this person has done such and so. Were there any witnesses? No. Jesus, did he do it? Yes. Case closed. Remember Solomon would always mediate out? It was a picture of the millennium you know, reign there. When Solomon would meet out, when they couldn't figure out what it was, Solomon would ask a question, figure it out, be done. This is what 
Jesus can do if David had to mediate or one of the, uh, one of the judges. The judges will be returned too. That's also told uh, of this time. Let's take a look at the final rebellion. We're coming to a close here. Our last three things to look at. Final rebellion, final judgment. At the end of a thousand years, yeah, I can't imagine being a child born in that time. They'll never see war. They'll never see famine. They'll never see the kind of crime and disease and everything else. But unbelievably, but not so unbelievably, because you and I have the same sin nature, at the end of a thousand years of the most perfect government system, health, you won't need health care, you know, all that stuff, all that stuff, and many people, remember we just read it in Revelation, it says almost, it looks like sands of the sea, the vast majority of humanity, when given the opportunity, Satan is released for a season, most people say, let's get rid of Jesus. Most people will. Most of the world will actually side with Satan and say, yep, if we could get rid of him, we could do all the fun... No more Feast of Tabernacles. No more Passover. He says it's all about him. He sits on that high throne. Maybe we can knock David off. And all, you know, they will come up, and the scripture says they come up against the holy city. They want to come and not. Here's a river that flows in both directions. They want to destroy it all. The final rebellion. But before there can be a war, there is no war this time. There's no blood up the horse bridle. Fire comes down out of heaven from God and consumes all of those. When they're consumed, they go straight into hell. They're consumed, they drop straight into hell. Satan is cast into the lake of fire, becoming the third individual in the lake of fire. He joins, this is at the end of the thousand year, he joins the Antichrist and the false prophet. And then we have the great white throne judgment. Every person that's ever lived from Cain, Cain was the first one that chose, remember Abel chose the Lord, Cain chose the way of Satan. From Cain to whoever the last group of people are at the end of the uh, millennium reign of Christ who are consumed, every lost person, every person who said, no thanks to God, I don't want your salvation, I don't want the blood of Jesus, I do not, will not receive what you have to offer, I'm good enough myself, or I choose evil, or whatever the choice is, every single one of them will stand before the great white throne that heaven and earth will fled away. Uh, and when they stand before the great white throne, it says the books are open, plural, books. What books? I believe that we have some clues. I believe one of the books is the book of the law, the Ten Commandments. They'll be judged against the Ten Commandments. The Bible says if we're guilty of breaking one, we're guilty of breaking how many? All ten. God will definitively show every single person You have violated all ten in spades of my commandments. If you've only broken one, of course, everyone's broken them all anyway. But the books will be open. The book of their entire life. How did they treat Christians and and God's chosen people? Uh, I didn't know I should give them a cup of water. I didn't know I should be kind. All those things. Everything will be judged. All the wickedness. There will be levels of judgment, just like there's levels of reward at the judgment seat of Christ, there's levels of punishment 
in the lake of fire. And then the last book will be opened. The last book is the Lamb's Book of Life. And it tells us that anyone's name not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, written by the very blood of Jesus, is cast into everlasting fire, where the wicked, the abominable, the adulterers, the fornicators, the cowardly, the unbelieving, they will all spend and have their place in the lake of fire. It's sobering that in this last glorious message, God says one final time in neon lights, major warning here. This is where the breadth of the world, as much as the sand of the sea, they choose the lake. Can you imagine? They will choose the lake of fire. When just, if they just choose the Lord, just a few days later, New Jerusalem. And they'll choose, many of them, the lake of fire. Now Jesus, it tells us in uh, Revelation 1.18, he has the keys to death and hell. All those in hell will be brought up, stand before the great white throne. One by one, they will stand there naked before the Lord, judged one by one, and as they are cast in the lake of fire, eventually he'll literally take hell and cast it in to the lake of fire as well. The demon hordes will probably be still in hell. He'll just cast them in. We don't know how the demons are dealt with. I'm not telling you definitively. Uh, There's no definite definite place in the Bible of when they're cast in, but we know they get the same treatment as Satan because it says Jesus himself that that hell was created for Satan and his fallen angels. So we know that they will be cast in as well. Now let's look at the final eternal worship and glory. The last parts of this final message from the Lord is all glorious. Chapters 21 and 22 are nothing but a gigantic glass of cold, fresh water. Right after you've seen the fire and the great white throne and the worst scene. By the way, the tribulation, and my daughters were telling me, Dad, that's really scary. We're talking about the tribulation. I said, the tribulation is not the worst thing. The great white throne is far worse than the tribulation. Seven years doesn't compare to eternity in hell, does it? But this is the greatest part, is the new heaven and the new earth. The bride comes down out of heaven as an eternal gift from God to his son. What I find fascinating about this as well, if you've studied the Bible at all, you know that Israel is called God's wife. The church is called God's wife. The New Jerusalem is called God's wife. Does God have three wives? Uh Uh-uh. What I believe is that they all fuse together. When the New Jerusalem comes down, the, the angel says, come, I will show you the bride. Talks about the city. It's a perfect cube of of roughly, uh, it's roughly um, 1,400 miles by 14, it's 1,380 miles, it's uh, 1,380 by 1,380 height, width, depth, so it's a perfect cube, it's got the 12 gates, and it's decorated with all these precious stones, and and the angel calls it, not once, but a couple of times, says, this is the bride. John might ask the same question as me, hold on, I thought Israel was the bride, and then I thought the church was the bride, now you say the New Jerusalem's the bride. They are the bride. I believe it's one because what takes place is what happens with the New Jerusalem. All the Gentile saints, all the Hebrew saints are all in 
the perfect cube, and you have a singleness. I kind of look at it, you know, uh, I might have, uh, I might call my wife Honey, I might call her Sarah, I mean, but we have, I only have one bride, but I could refer to the bride in different ways, right? So I, I really myself, I just started looking at this and I said, wow, this is really amazing because it's clear that God identifies Israel the church, and the New Jerusalem, all his bride. But we know he only has one bride. But then again, we know that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. But we know that he's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. Is there more than one God? There's one God. But in three manifestations, and I really believe that we'll understand some of these things. I don't claim to understand all this. If you claim to know all, all the prophecy, then you know a lot more than I do. We'll, get a, we'll understand some of this in the age to come, but all things are made new. No more tears, no more death, no more sorrow. There's no temple anymore. The temple, which is going to be rebuilt in the tribulation, then it's re-resurrected in the millennium. There's no temple anymore. Jesus is the temple. Remember what Jesus said? He goes, destroy this temple and what? In three days, I'll raise it up. Boy, that really incited them. That put him on the cross, didn't it? fact that he blasphemed, in their mind, blasphemed the temple, but Jesus will actually be the temple, and he'll be the light. There'll be no sun. A beautiful river will flow, as clear as crystal, the scriptures tell us. Trees on both sides of the river. The tree of life is back, which was in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life is there, and trees that line both sides of the river, and the, and the fruits change every month. Constant. They always give fruit. New fruits. Unbelievable. It's for the healing of the nations of all things. The other thing that I find is interesting is in eternity, we know that it's outside of time, and yet there's a time-space element as well because it tells us that the fruit trees change each month. And I'm like, Lord, but I, I know there is no time, but yet there's a month mentioned. In the, it, there's a, God's going to fuse a lot of things together that will blow your mind. Amen? And then... I wanted to close with this last slide as we get ready for partaking of the Lord's Supper. This is what all of the book of Revelation is about right here. I don't know what I don't know what you think of Jesus. But I put the cross at the center here. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Jesus said is uh, to do this. That he, remember, he said he would not drink of the vine until his kingdom comes. He draws a direct line between the partaking of the Lord's Supper and the understanding of the cross and the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, he's saying, those of you who treasure my death will experience all of my glory. If you don't treasure Jesus' death... You have no concept of him in any of these other roles, all that he is. You have no concept. Like, up at the top here, I have Jesus standing, and there's a sea of millions of believers worshiping him. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be in that sea of people with your arms lifted up worshiping? I can promise you, if you are, you already will worship him like this today. The Bible says we are seated in the heavenlies right now. 
This, this is just a, we have had our ticket stamped. This is a temporary place for us. We're passing through. I look at Jesus, 